This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody, great to have you with us again. I think it's pretty amazing to see how the mainstream media operates. And most recently... I think it's galling to see how the mainstream media operates, particularly the New York Times. I was reflecting on the fact that the New York Times has issued a fair number of really embarrassing corrections over the last several months on key issues that have come up in our culture. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I got to keep that in the background as I bring you this story. This is absolutely incredible. A writer by the name of Kevin Roos over at the New York Times puts out this article, How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis. Now, first of all, do you think the founders for one single solitary moment thought it was the objective and the responsibility of the federal government to solve the reality crisis of its populace? We are so far into Orwell territory, it isn't even funny. This is how it starts out. Last month, millions of Americans watched as President Biden took the oath of office and in a high-minded inaugural address called for a new era of American unity. But plenty of other Americans weren't paying attention to Biden's speech. There were They were too busy watching YouTube videos alleging that the inauguration was a pre-recorded hoax that had been filmed on a Hollywood soundstage. I stopped after that because I said, I I never heard of any such video. Was there some viral video on YouTube with people talking about the Biden inauguration being a pre-recorded hoax? Because I never saw it. And guess what? I went on YouTube. I couldn't find it. Maybe it's just patently obvious and it's over my head. I couldn't find it. Who's he talking about? What videos is he talking about? I don't even know. Or he says they were melting down in QAnon group chats trying to figure out why former President Trump wasn't interrupting Biden's speech to declare martial law and announce the mass arrest of satanic pedophiles. Or maybe their TVs were tuned to OAN. I think that's OANN, where an anchor was floating the baseless theory that Biden wasn't actually elected by the people. Hoaxes, lies, and collective delusions aren't new, but the extent to which millions of Americans have embraced them may be. It's because the New York Times said so. 30% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon. According to a poll, more than 70% of Republicans believe Trump legitimately won the election. 40% of Americans believe the baseless theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. This is interesting. He can just declare what is true and reject what is false with no proof of any of it. Isn't that interesting? 70% of Republicans believe Trump legitimately won the election. You think they just pulled that out of a hat one day? Really, Kevin Roos? You think all of these millions and millions and millions of people who voted for Trump and saw the insanity that ensued in those up-for-grab states for the better part of, what, a couple months? Or it felt like a couple of months. I don't even know how long the time frame was. But certainly a long time after November 3rd, we were still trying to figure out which votes went where and who won what and and the rest of it. Why wouldn't people be suspicious? 
That doesn't mean they have a reality crisis. So what is his solution? He goes to some of these deep, deep liberal thinkers. One says this expert, beware of experts, assess the damage and avoid the terrorist trap. Joan Donovan, the research director of Harvard University's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy, suggested that the Biden administration could set up a truth commission similar to the 9-11 commission to investigate the planning and execution of the Capitol siege on January 6th. The truth commission. I'm telling you full Orwell, but this is the one that's getting all of the press here. One of the suggestions from another expert was to appoint a reality czar. No kidding. Even though even this writer says it sounds a little dystopian, I'll grant, but let's hear them out. A little dystopian. That's a little dystopian. The Biden administration is going to tell you what reality actually is. I'm sure Chairman Xi is loving this because that's what they love to do in communist countries. One point of view hammered into your little brain day after day after day after day and no dissenters allowed and anything that tries to come up against the lies that they're feeding you all of the time. You just have to label disinformation and go back to your reality czar. These people are positively terrifying. They really are. I don't care if they're talking about it in terms of possibility rather than reality. The mere fact that this guy who works for a newspaper that has trouble telling the truth on a regular basis thinks we need their help on the left assessing reality is totally offensive. Let me go back to some of these. The New York Times, for example, labeled one of the Daily Caller's journalists a rioter during January 6th, during the breach of the Capitol, and they had to issue a correction. They said the news media, this was famous around the time of the election. I referenced it at the time, and you might have seen it on Twitter. They put out a tweet that the news media is responsible for declaring the nation's next president. Uh, No, it isn't, and they had to issue a correction. And then you remember that white woman in Central Park who was filmed by a black bird watcher, and she was scared that he was threatening her, and she called 911. The New York Times further reported that she placed a second call to 911 and claimed that the black bird watcher was trying to assault her Oops, never happened. And they had to issue a correction saying she, in fact, never did place a second phone call and claimed that the black bird watcher was trying to assault her. It didn't happen. The second call was the dispatcher at 911 calling her. This is the New York Times, which thinks it's in some kind of a position to tell you what reality is. They can't even get the news straight. They can't even get the news straight. It's a it's a parade of corrections. But listen to how the left talks. This is a perfect example. Jen Psaki, the hapless, I'll circle back to you, press secretary for President Biden, has had some very eerie things to say of late. Listen to cut one. As you know, President Trump has been barred from a lot of social media sites. I'm curious whether you think his absence has made your job any easier or the White House's job any easier as it kind of goes forward on these COVID negotiations. In what way? Well, he created a lot of noise, right? He, uh, he, would, he would have certain gravitational pull with Republicans who may be, um, may be more inclined to take a harder position. wonder if that's been anything that you guys have thought about or, or kind of considered. This may be hard to believe. We don't spend a lot of time talking about or thinking about President Trump here, former President Trump, uh, to to be very clear. Um, I think that's a question that's probably more appropriate for Republican members um, who um, are looking for ways to support a bipartisan package uh, and whether that gives them space. But uh, I can't say we miss him on Twitter. 
This is the new administration. This is how it is now. This is how it is now. You just openly detest the former president. You don't have anything to say about the fact that it's despicable big tech would shut down any president of the United States. Nothing, because they're thrilled about it. We don't care. We're glad not to see him on Twitter. You should be terrified of a government like this. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because if they don't care if the president of the United States, who's the highest elected official in the land, doesn't get to address his people that he serves directly, if you don't have a problem with that, you probably shouldn't be there either. I would have a problem with that. I I believe in free speech, and I think that people should hear from their president. I think Biden ought to have the same right to be able to speak to people that Trump did. But I'm not going to say something like that. Here's another one, a reporter asking her another question about Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is cut two. I know you said earlier that you would not like to be commenting on her, but it's a major story. Does the White House have any concerns about a QAnon supporter, someone with a history of racist? Now we're seeing anti-Semitic comments, harassing school shooting survivor families, serving on House committees. Well, uh, I think the reason I conveyed that is because we don't want to elevate uh, conspiracy theories further in the briefing room. So I'm going to speak. To, I'm going to leave it at that. And I'll sure, we'll leave. Deci- we'll leave. De- we'll leave decisions about committees uh, to members of Congress. And we've certainly seen Speaker Pelosi speak to that. OK, so as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is now on the verge of losing her committee positions, thanks to House Democrats, we don't talk about conspiracy theories in this room. We're just going to shut down any discussion. This is not a defense of everything that Representative Green has said, but do you see what's happening here? They have successfully, in my opinion, one way or another, been able to purge more reasonable voices in their own party. Are they moving now to purge the other side? We'll see. Again, this kind of government ought to terrify you. We the people run this country, not these censors. We're going to come back. Stay with us. With everything going on in our world today, life can seem pretty dismal. We have a pandemic, riots, racial tension, and you might be asking, how can I make any difference? Well, here's one way you can make a huge difference in someone's life, through the ministry of Preborn. Preborn is dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through offering free ultrasounds to pregnant women in crisis. And when women in crisis pregnancies see their babies on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, they'll choose life for their children. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the USA, and preborn centers are often situated in the highest-risk abortion hotspots, competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. The mainstream media doesn't want you to know that Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, had a racist legacy stemming from her well-documented connections with the eugenics movement. If you want to help make a difference in the midst of chaos, please support preborn. One ultrasound is just $28, and five ultrasounds are $140, saving five babies' lives. 100% of your donors donation goes to saving babies' lives. Please call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Here's one mom talking about what preborn has meant to her. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry, and it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. Uh, She's been such a joy. Her name even means rebirth and sort of being raised up from the ashes. Uh, I now see my daughter, and I cannot imagine my life without my happy, lovely, joyful, smart baby, and I'm so grateful. 
Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? When you donate, you'll get a picture of an ultrasound along with stories of other babies' lives who you help to save. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, President Lyndon Johnson had the Great Society. President Trump wanted to make America great again. And now President Biden is also invoking greatness, having made reference to the concept multiple times in his recent inaugural address. But as my next guest has written over at the Hill, presidents should avoid using this word great, both for their own good and for the good of the nation. We're going to talk about it now with Amity Schlaes, who is co-editor of a new edition of the Autobiography of Calvin Coolidge and chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Foundation. She's also the author of six other books, including Great Society, A New History. And Amity, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be on. Yeah, well, tell me a little bit about your take on the word great, because President Biden's greats obviously seem to be a little bit of a rebranding, as you point out, from Make America Great Again. But you're arguing here it's a mistake to deploy this word great at all when it comes to a political agenda. Why is that the case? Well, first of all, you're overpromising. True. Uh, Over-promising breaks down trust. You tell someone you're going to get them a $30 stake, you get them only a $20 stake, you let them down. It's much better with humans to um, underplay what you're going to offer and over-deliver as in business. But the second difference, the second problem is that great pretty soon becomes the individual. Hmm. The country, that's me. Yeah, uh, you know, as French kings said, uh, and uh, it, great morphs over to the individual. And the idea that the president is great rather than good might be valuable uh, in a war when he's commander in chief, but is less valuable when he's just chief executive of a functioning government. And the focus on the individual takes you away from the focus on the work and the right policies that can yield the work that can make America, by the way, great. Yeah, so really good point. It ends up being about him or her, right? And yes. that's always the problem. Well, uh, it, it is. And I mean, going back to the Great Society, for example, which you have written about, how did the Great Society, for example, fail to live up to its name? Let's just say what the Great Society was. Lyndon Johnson of Texas, so your listeners will know well. Um, America was doing fairly well. It was quite idealistic in the early 60s. That's that's quite similar to now. Young people thought we could do anything and the economy would pay for everything. (laughs) Um, So let's not just go for good. They didn't call it the good society under Johnson. Johnson liked the great society, by which he meant um, specifically curing poverty. He used that verb at various points, C-U-R-E, cure, not alleviate or reduce, Um, ending civil rights troubles and divisions among Americans. First, uh, he talked about equality of opportunity. Later, he shifted to an even harder great, which you hear, um, by the way, the Biden administration uh, alluding to a greatness of equality of result. Very hard for government to um, get that outcome always leads to disappointment because life isn't even 
unfortunately. Yes. Um, and so th- this was the, the culture of Johnson. He also thought he could spend greatly. It was a large spending administration, which necessitated ugly tax increases, of course, eventually, and led to um, a breakdown of our finances, um, which uh, President Nixon had to administrate. But nonetheless, um, the spending was the result of Johnson's great society, at least it's, you know, the impulse um, and our entitlements and domestic spending became more important uh, than our defense spending, which no one imagined and has been the case ever since um, right. as the share of the budget. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So it's a little hard to go back and talk about the Great Society as having been great when you look at the results to education, like you say, in racial divisions. We still have those, obviously. But you've talked also about the issue of previous Democrats and, and Republicans as well, not wanting to use the word great, you know, the, the the downside of using the word great. How have you seen this with, for example, Roosevelt? You mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his first inaugural address, you know, containing lots of references to great. Uh, we had the Great Depression, but of course the Great Depression was not great in terms of being good, but great in terms of being broad in scope. That was the wrong great. Right. Yeah, right. That was not the great he intended. <laughs> Roosevelt, um, there are many Roosevelts. You know, all presidents are a collection of impulses. And Roosevelt at times demonstrated, demonstrated restraint. We want to recall that when uh, he ran for office as from an important, then important, very important state, New York, electorally, um, he didn't say, and I will spend like crazy. He <laughs> said, I will be restrained. Um, but in office, his ambition took over him. And specifically, um, not only did he call for the New Deal, the precursor to the Great Society, he also called for bold, persistent experimentation. What does that emanate from? It has to emanate from an individual. And for the individual um, who happens to be president to have such authority, well, he has to be great, right? Yes. So Roosevelt became like a god. Uh, and that's uh, that's not particularly useful, as I'm sure you'll want to mention President Coolidge said. Um, President Coolidge, the opposite of um, a great seeker, said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the text quite in front of me, but he said it's a great safety for the country for the president to know he is not a great man. President Coolidge did not like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> he didn't like a super guy. Um, and I know, um, you know, that sounds a little cold and unlovable, but his point was quite simple. We're all servants. What are we doing? We're serving the government and trying to deliver to the people. It's not about us. Right. Right. So, you know, whether, you know, wherever you are in current politics, um, we all know that it's incautious to make everything about us. It's about delivering a certain set of results in a certain set of years. Um, it's not about changing the rules so we can rule forever. Um, I mean, uh, in the state I've lived in, um, in the past, New York, um, the mayor, uh, mayors of both parties have talked about changing the term schedule, ending a term limit for themselves. Politicians tend to want to change the rules so they can stay in power. That's human nature. But what does that do? That takes the policy away from the people and makes it about the person. And I was just looking at the Republican platform effort for 2020, and the party kind of pawned it. had the COVID excuse and said, we're kind of going to just stick to what we had before for platform. And 
We'll wait for President Trump to say something. And that was, in my view, a big error, because why are presidents there? To implement policy. Sure. That's right. And that's such a great point, because I I think we can all agree that humility doesn't tend to be a very common quality among politicians. But in fact, you probably could do a lot more if you really did consider yourself, first and foremost, a public servant above everything else. And how do you think Coolidge did with that in practice? Well, Well, Coolidge is a great, great example, because Coolidge was a study in reserve and restraint, which made him always be underestimated. And he knew that that was productive because he would under-promise, look under-promising, and then over-deliver. Well, voters like that. That turns out to be politically great. So um, he said, well, um, I'm going – he came in after a scandal, by the way, uh, Teapot Dome, um, which was the scandal of the Harding administration relating to the privatization of federal oil reserves in the Navy. Um, Why do we care? We care because if you're going to do privatization, you have to do it honestly and not just to four friends, basically. It's the very market concept, which Republicans supposedly hold so dear, of privatization when you make it a game for your friends, right? Right. That's not privatization. That's a game for your friends. And that's effectively, apparently, what Interior uh, Secretary Fall did in the Teapot Dome scandal. So that made the GOP look terrible. They were supposed to be privatizers and they were friend helpers. So Coolidge came in, Harding, uh, the president for Teapot Dome, passed away. Suddenly Coolidge was stuck with this scandal and he said, I'm going to clean this up. One, by uh, rigorously uh, looking for wrongdoing, he appointed two special counsel, one Democrat, one Republican, to look into Teapot Dome. And by moving beyond it, by behaving in exemplary fashion myself, Harding had a lot of parties at the White House. Coolidge did not, to the disappointment sometimes of his uh, more extroverted family. (laughs) Um, You know, he cut budgets. But that was of a piece with his policy. He was asking the nation to cut its budget at that time. He was asking the nation to cut taxes, but he had to cut budgets to keep up with taxes. So his personal comportment and his political goals were not inconsistent. There was a harmony there that any observer likes, just as you like, um, let's see, a minister who lives by example rather than betrays his own principles. It's right. very important to people that people are intellectually and personally consistent. That's why character matters. It also spared him political capital of explaining away scandals because he didn't have any himself Coolidge. So he's able to do what? He didn't say, and the Coolidge policy will be. He said, <laughs> I will follow what we promised the voter in 1920. We promised the voter to cut taxes. We did that some before Harding um, passed away. I will continue to do that. I will do it not only somewhat, but meticulously. He used the phrase, I will bend all my energies to service. (laughs) And that really worked out because the policies were good one. They had heavy taxes. The taxes became light. America did thrive. People um, got jobs. There were enormous productivity gains. People got indoor plumbing in the 20s in America, became the rule rather than the exception, which is very important to uh, reducing poverty. What is poverty? I mean, really, how do we define it? What's the difference between poverty and being poor? A toilet. That is the number one thing. And indoor, right? If you want to measure. So Coolidge achieved great things for Americans through being the opposite of great.
Isn't that interesting? I Well, I think that's such good food for thought. And I think obviously we're living in an age where TV and Internet coverage makes it all the more tempting for presidents to try to use this kind of hyperbolic language. But it makes a whole lot of sense when you get into the background on Calvin Coolidge. Amity Schley with us. So good to talk to you, Amity. I'm a big fan of your books and it was great to have you here. I'm honored to be on, and I hope people take a look at the autobiography. Uh, the new edition is also for older children, and we worked hard on that. Wonderful. So. Thank you. The autobiography of Calvin Coolidge, Amity Schles. Thank you. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us. I think it's often too easy to look at our trials and our sufferings and conclude that we have it worse than other people. And we might sometimes, but this is why it helps sometimes to go back to study some of the lives of people in scripture, because that can really help to put our own situations into a more godly perspective. And my guest who is coming up with me now does this in her new book, Examining God's Grace in the Lives of 12 Women of the Old Testament. So we're joined now by Jill Eileen Smith, who is author of She Walked Before Us. Jill, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I I understand that you are particularly interested in the lives of women in the Old Testament. What got you interested in studying some of these women's lives? I know some of them are quite famous and most Christians will know who they are. Others are a little bit more obscure. Well, it started with uh, uh, studying the life of King David back when I was a young mom raising three boys and co-teaching a Bible study about his life. And it was really, I was more interested in men of Scripture at that time because I was in a family of men. But as time went on and I wanted to actually read a novel about King David and couldn't find it, hmm. it turned into writing a novel about McCall and then about Abigail. And I started pursuing the women of Scripture of his life and then beyond, especially once the wives of King David sold. Right. So as you're going along and you're learning about more and more of these women, it becomes really interesting to delve into them. And you're using the descriptions of a lot of these women as examples of grace, courage, and strength. Why do you think that's important for Christian women to have these kinds of examples like we do in the Old Testament? Because we're not so very different. I don't think human nature doesn't change with the passage of time. We, um, our cultures change, you know, the way we dress, the way we think and talk, but our emotions and our feelings and um, how we perceive a lot of things don't really change. And, of course, we're all um, born with... Uh, in nature, at least that's how I believe um, mm-hmm. the Bible teaches it, and we tend to, to have those same petty jealousies or um, trust issues or forgiveness issues, their broken relationships, and all kinds of other things. It, those things happen to every person on the planet, and yeah. they did they did the same with those in ancient history. Well, sure. So when you're looking at the 12, all of them are really important women to study. Is there any one among the 12 that you gravitate toward as far as relating more to her than the other 11? Mm. 
<laughs> it's hard, <That's> I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure, because I do relate in different ways to all of them. Um, probably Naomi would uh, be one I'd relate to just now that I'm older. Um, and not that I've lost my children, but, you know, she's, I now have grandchildren and uh, daughters-in-law, so I can relate to her in a little bit that way. Um, I always loved the wives of King David, and I always pondered Bathsheba's story, and I think I gravitated toward the forgiveness angle there. So I don't really have a favorite, um, but, I mean, they're all... They're all unique, you know. Sure. I I had to really study the men around them to figure out the women, though, because there's not a whole lot on some of the women in the Bible. Yeah. And um, so getting to know them through what God tells us about the men has been kind of inspiring, I guess. Sure. And, of course, I use my imagination a lot in trying to figure them out, and you can't take my word for what they thought, because the only scripture is the actual truth. I, I do weave fiction into even my nonfiction. So, but I hope that I also bring out the actual, what is in scripture so people can know what this is, what the Bible says about this person exactly, and learn from that. Yeah, that's important. So, well, why don't we talk a little bit about some of these women? You mentioned Naomi, and of course, it's hard mm-hmm. to think of Naomi without Ruth and Ruth without Boaz. <laughs> what, what is your take on the importance of Ruth and Naomi and what they can teach us about grace and strength and wisdom, too? Mm. Well, I think Ruth is, I, I really love her character because she's in the lineage of Christ, um, just as some of the others are, but... Um, I love her devotion to her mother-in-law when she lost everything. I love her faith that because she came from the Moabites who believed in child sacrifice and um, were totally pagan in comparison to the Hebrew culture. And I believe Naomi would have probably been the one to teach Ruth and and her sister-in-law about the God of the Hebrews. I don't know if her husband before Boaz would have taught her much about um, the God of the Hebrews. But I think that that connection of faith was really um, unique in many cases and really wonderful. I I think it's that they would have that closeness. I think it was because of God and Ruth took a lot of risks to go back with Naomi. If you read Ruth's story, it's, it's as much Naomi's as it is Ruth. Yes. And so it's pretty fascinating to see the two, how God blessed both of them in different ways. Well, right. When you're talking about Naomi in particular, you're highlighting when turning around is the best thing. How do you see that in her life, turning around and, and that being the best thing she could do? Well, she had followed her husband to a foreign land because of a famine. Uh, she wouldn't have stayed behind, so she her hus- it was her husband's choice to leave Israel, and so she was with him and watched her sons marry foreign women and watched her husband and sons die in that foreign land, and there was nothing left for her there. So she had no choice, really, but to turn around and go back to Bethlehem that she'd left, and I, I tend to think she might not have wanted to leave it in the first place, but she had no choice. Because back then, a woman would follow her husband, and she wasn't going to stay behind. Right. Um, so I think it took 
it took courage to go back because I think a lot of times we don't want to go back and fix what's been wrong. She left as what her name meaning happy or, you know, she, I forget if that's the exact meaning, but anyway, she came back and said, call me Mara for, she was bitter for all that had happened to her. I, I see her as a female Job. She lost everything. Mm-hmm. And, she walked back into Bethlehem and, and found that God was so gracious to her. So it took courage to go back and admit, in her, if to no one else, that she had to admit in her heart she'd been wrong. Well, even though if she couldn't control it, she, it was still wrong to leave. And, and she had to make amends in her heart by going back, I think. And, um, and God provided Boaz. So... Um, I tell the whole story of Ruth and her in a novel about her, and I give Naomi's point of view there as well. Um, that was fun to explore. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, do, do you make much of the relationship between Ruth and Naomi? Because I think that's something a lot of Christian women will read about and say, there's nothing like a Christian friend who's a woman uh, to just to have that bond with another woman, whether or not it's a sister or daughter-in-law and mother-in-law situation, or if it's just a friend, do you highlight that? Do you look at that relationship in light of our relationships with other women in the church? You mean in this book or in the novel? (laughs) Just in general, when you're thinking about these two women, does, is that something that you take away from the descriptions that we see in scripture that this is not only an example here of two individuals, but also the relationship is significant? I think the relationship was significant. I'm not sure. I mean, you could equate it to relationships in the church. If you want to flip over to the New Testament and look at Titus, where it tells the older women to kind of mentor the younger women and teach them to be love their husbands and children and be busy and things like that. Right, um, right. So I think that we can learn uh, the in, in the church age in that sense. They, it doesn't have to be the same family, but in the Old Testament, they were a lot more close in a family unit. There was not as much, um, they were more tribal than they were in the New Testament. There was a whole lot of change because of Roman occupation and yeah. things like that. Absolutely. I'll so, tell you what, hang on just a moment, Jill. We do need to pause for a quick break. You're listening to Janet Muffer today. We'll come back with Jill Eileen Smith. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. 
That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Have you ever read these wonderful passages in Scripture about different women throughout, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament? My my guest, Jill Eileen Smith, has done this in her book, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament. We're talking about some of them. Now, we were talking about Ruth and Naomi before we went to the break. I want to try to hit on some of these other women that you've written about here, Jill, one of whom I, I just have... Uh, real love for Rahab. I don't know why this is. She's called, obviously, she's commended in the book of Hebrews as a woman of faith. This is the prostitute who hid the spies. She throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into some people's understanding, I would think, of the way that the Lord works because she's a prostitute, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and she's doing something that, that most of us would say is sinful. You know, she's hiding people and she's mm-hmm. all these things. How do you look at her and, and what do you take away from her life? Oh, I loved writing her story in the novel form. So when I got to add her here, it was not too hard. Yes. Because <laughs> um, exploring her life was fascinating. And I've read another novel or two on Rahab's story. So mine's different, but that's because we can all imagine how it happened or, you know, you've got the basics that scripture gives you and then you have to apply like I have to apply at least motive um what were her motives for hiding the spies how did she become a prostitute was it her choice was was she sold into it by her family was she um sold in it, into it by someone else was was it you know done for survival reasons we don't know there's a lot of reasons women go into that today just to survive and um She was a wealthy prostitute, so I don't think we can consider her um, as one of the less, uh, maybe just a typical street prostitute, if you're thinking uh, what we might consider today, or at least on television shows. But um, she had the ear of the king. I mean, and he, he was watching her house and sent people to ask about the spies. So I think she was dealing with some high level clients. And she probably saw their fear when they heard about the Israelites destroying the kings on the other side of the Jordan, and especially when they heard that they'd crossed the Jordan. But I think that the God of the Hebrews intrigued her, and that God can choose anybody in any profession. He's not 
we aren't beyond his hand of forgiveness. He's, his arm is not too short to reach us no matter where we are. That's and right. I think he reached out and gave her faith to trust an unknown God because she saw all of the gods her people worshipped and they didn't do it for her. Mm-hmm. I just don't think right. she... If they had, she'd had no reason to do anything to help the spies. Yes. She took a risk, and it was a huge one. Um, but I think that um, it was it was a faith that was very weak at the beginning, but I, I like to explore the fact that Israel accepted her. And I know when I studied her life, um, in the Jewish commentary online I read, they thought she married Joshua. Um, but if you read the New Testament, it says she married Solomon hmm. because, but the Jewish, uh, um, they just, they mostly all read the Old Testament, not the New Testament. So if that's all they were looking at, they wouldn't have had the genealogy of Christ to show us that. Hmm. So I created that whole characterization in the novel, but the point being, Israel accepted her despite what she'd done because she'd helped them and eventually was in the line of David and in the line of Christ. And I mean, that's pretty exemplary. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Someone else who I think is is well worth highlighting is Deborah. Now, she's very interesting because here she was a prophetess. She was a judge. She was given this message to give to Barak to attack Sisera and she didn't flinch. I mean, her role was very different than the role of a lot mm-hmm. of other women in the Old Testament. What about her dealing with God's call in her life? Well, the Bible, again, gives very little on Deborah. We were given two chapters, and one of them is a song. I mean, we're, we're told almost nothing about her. I had a really hard time envisioning her when I first set out to do it. Um, but I think that one at the time, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and probably God called her because she was receptive to him, where maybe a lot of men weren't. I mean, when she gave the message to Barak, um, he didn't really want to do it. I mean, he did, but not if she didn't go with him. Mm-hmm. She was, he wanted her support, and that kind of told me that the men in the they they wanted to fight this terrible person in Sisera and the king Jabin, but they didn't. Um, I don't know. Somehow they needed her courage, and maybe because she represented Christ or God to them, because she had a greater faith and was willing to step out and speak the word to people and judge the people that came to her when no one else would. Right. Well, that's an interesting point when you talk about her faith, because that's kind of a stream that you see with a lot of these different women. And I see that also in Hannah. Hannah is a perfect Mm -hmm. example that she was barren and she was her husband's favorite wife, and yet she couldn't Mm -hmm. have any children. And that was a a very big deal, obviously, at that time in history. Um, Mm -hmm. These days, it might have changed a little bit in terms of feeling shame. You wouldn't necessarily feel shame over it. How do you see Hannah as demonstrating that kind of incredible faith in the Lord? I think that she had huge faith because how many years did she have to live with her sister wife bearing child after child? And how long had she been the only wife before he married someone else because she couldn't have children? So she had to live with abuse, really, because 
Peninnah would have been, in the Bible says, she was very abusive. And Hannah could have lost hope in having a child uh, very easily. I mean, I could understand it. It's easy to lose hope when you wait year after year praying for the same thing and it doesn't happen. And I think that when she finally got to whatever breaking point God needed her to be willing to give up the very things she was asking for. When she could pray and say, Lord, if you'd give me this, you can have it back. Hmm. And I don't know why sometimes God asked that of us, but she believed strongly enough that she could say that to him. She could surrender that, that deeply. And God, then I think she knew she had her answer before she ever got pregnant after that prayer. Right. And I think it was immense faith that God must have given her that added grace at that moment, because I don't think, I think it took a while for her to get to that place. We don't get to surrender easily as humans. We're too proud. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So So, uh, Hannah, having Samuel, this was a very significant occurrence in the stream of mm-hmm. human history, obviously, because then he went on to become the spiritual leader of Israel. And, you know, this is, it's very interesting because I think even though you don't learn an awful lot of the details about some of these women, we have much more information about a lot of the men in the Old Testament than we do about the women. But mm-hmm. where where would Israel have been if she hadn't had that little boy? I mean, it's so significant. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, because he was the last prophet and priest before the first king. Right. So he was, he was, and judge. I mean, he he was a exemplary man, and I don't think she went the rest of her life without seeing him because she would make him a coat and take it to him every year. And um, her husband was actually in the the Levitical, I think Levitical line, so he could have worked it at the tabernacle and seen his son every so often. I think they probably took time to do that in that, at least from what I studied. So I don't think she never saw him again, but she didn't, she wasn't raising him. She wasn't the one to be um, in his life. And I think that'd be, that'd be like Moses's mother, you know, to, mm. to give up your baby like that to someone else is hard. Yes. I can't imagine it. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that at all. And, and and you mentioned something very significant because it was Samuel who then went on to anoint Saul and David. And right. it, when you consider the providence of God and how all of these women fit into the providence of God in very different but very significant ways, it just opens your eyes even more to the importance that God placed on these women throughout the Old Testament. The name of the book, She Walked Before Us, Grace, Courage, and Strength from 12 Women of the Old Testament by Jill Eileen Smith. Jill, it was great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. It was great to have you. God bless. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you on the next broadcast. Take care. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.